Amen. All right, well, we're there in Leviticus chapter number 6, and uh, we weren't in the book of Leviticus last week, but we're jumping right back, and if you remember, well, we, we've, we kind of finished a section uh, last time we were in the book of Leviticus where we went through chapters 1 and chapter 5, uh, took one week for each one of those chapters, and every one of those chapters dealt with a specific offering. If you remember, chapter 1 was about the burnt offering, chapter 2 about the meat offering, chapter 3 about the peace offering, chapter 4 about the sin offering, and chapter 5 about the trespass offering. Chapter 6 is, it d- does not deal with its own separate offerings. What chapter 6 does, it kind of just gives, it goes back and kind of reviews a little bit and gives you some extra material for all of those burnt offerings, and there's just kind of a lot of random things that are dealt with in this chapter. So what I'm going to do tonight is I found about six lessons uh, that we learn from this chapter, six practical lessons. So I want to give you six lessons from Leviticus chapter 6, all right? Six lessons from Leviticus chapter 6 tonight. We'll go through them as quickly as we can. And uh, they, they're not really connected and they're just, they're just, you know, the Word of God and what God has given us here. But we'll, we'll get started in verse 1. Notice what the Bible says, Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord. Now, we're, we're finishing up. In the, in the first seven uh, verses of this chapter, we're kind of just finishing up this uh, idea of the trespass offering and the sin offering. And the Bible says, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord. Uh, so notice there's a sin against the Lord. But then it says this, And... And lie unto his neighbor. So this is not just a sin against the Lord, but this is a sin that has affected both the Lord and an individual and a neighbor. This person lied unto the neighbor. In that which was delivered unto him to keep, or in fellowship, or in things taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor. So he gives us a few examples there. He says... This person was given something to care for and didn't, you know, it was delivered to him to keep. Or in fellowship, he just, you know, lied to the individual or a thing taken away by violence. He took something away from them and he has deceived his neighbor. Notice verse 3. Or have found that which was lost and lieth concerning it. So he found something, you know, neighbor comes by and says, hey, I'm missing, you know, whatever. Have you seen it? And he lies about it and says no, and he keeps it. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 3, Or have found that which was lost and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely in any of all these that a man doeth. Notice what he says, sinning therein. So he says, if if you've sinned against the Lord and a neighbor and another individual, you've lied, you've deceived, uh, deceived them, you've taken something from them or withheld something that belonged to them, Notice what the Bible says, verse 4, Then it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore. You see that word restore there? It says that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or that which, uh, or the thing which he had deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he, hath ev- uh, he shall even... Notice, restore it in the principle and shall add the fifth part more thereto. Now, what's the fifth part? That's 20%. Here's what he's saying. When you, final, when you hurt someone, when you've taken something from someone, you've lied to them, you've stolen something, and you finally you know, 
the conviction of God is upon you, you repent, you confess it, you want to make it right. The lesson that we learn from here is that simply confessing it to God and making a sacrifice to God is not enough. And here's, and if you'd like to take notes, I'd like to write this down. The first lesson is this. Repentance requires restoration. Repentance requires restoration. It's not enough. It's not enough. Now, sometimes we sin against God and we sin against people and there's nothing you can do to, to, to make it right. But if you've actually... Uh, taken something from someone, you've, you've stolen something from someone, you've destroyed something that you weren't you know, supposed to. Here the Bible says, hey, you need to make it right. And just in life, we need to re- remember when we sin against God and when we sin against men and we would try to make that right, uh, we've got to think, you know, is there a way for me to restore this? Is there something that I can do, you know, to try to make it right? Because here we're learning that repentance requires restoration. God says, I don't want you to just restore it. You know, here's what he's saying. If, you, if someone would have given you something to, 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 to hold on to for them, to, to, to keep safe, and you would have damaged it or, or lost it, and you didn't lie about it, then you, you should just restore it. But since this individual actually lied and tried to cover it up, then they don't, don't only restore it, but they have to add. Notice verse 5. Or all that about which he had sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle and shall add the fifth part. More there too. So you got to pay it back and then you give them 20%. Whatever that was worth, you know, it costs you $50, it costs you $20, it costs you $100 to restore it. Then you figure out what 20% of that is and you give them that even more and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock with thy estimation for a trespass offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord and it shall be forgiven him. Notice it's not forgiven him from the Lord until he makes it right with the other individual for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. Now keep your place there in Leviticus 6 and let's look at a verse just real quickly in the book of John. John chapter number 13. Uh, keep your place in Leviticus 6. Obviously that's our text for tonight. John chapter number 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 13. Look at verse 34. And here's something that you need to understand that I feel like many Christians don't comprehend this. Especially independent fundamental Baptists. We struggle with this. John chapter 13 and verse 34. Notice what the Bible says. John 13 and verse 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye love, that ye also love one another. Now you might say, well, a new commandment, you know, loving one another is not new. I think the new part was where he says, as I have loved you. He says, I want you to love each other as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. But notice verse 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. See, you cannot be right with God without being right with your fellow brethren. You cannot, your relationship with God is based on your relationship with others. And today, and, and, I, and I find this a lot in our independent federal Baptist churches where, you know, you've got ladies, they fight with everyone. I mean, they're constantly just fighting. Every church they go to, they've got a beef with the pastor's wife. Every church they go to, they've got an issue with the pastor. You know, every, everywhere they go, it doesn't matter. But, but, you know, they're like, whoa, I'm all, you know, I dress right and I go to church and I'm a soul winner. Yeah, but you fight with everybody. Don't tell me you're right with God. 
Look, you, the only way to be right with God is to make sure that you've done everything you can to be right with others. We are to, as much as it is possible, to, to, to dwell with men in peace. You know, we want to try to have a good relationship. And here, even Jesus said, all men, uh, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So don't fool yourself in thinking, well, I'm, you're fighting with everybody in church, but you're right with God. You are not right with God. You're, you are only right with the Lord when your heart is right with others. Our relationship with God is based on our relationship with others. And that's what Jesus, that's what the Bible is teaching here. God, in the book of Leviticus, God is saying, you can't just steal from someone or destroy somebody's property or do wrong to somebody and then take a sacrifice to the priest and make it right with God. God says, no, you got to make that right with the individual. And by the way, we also learn from this that God is teaching, God is teaching Personal responsibility. We need to learn to take personal responsibility for our actions. And if you're a parent here tonight, I need you to listen up very carefully, okay? You need to write this statement down. You need to commit this statement to memory. When it comes to your children, when it comes to your children, don't bail, let them fail. The biggest disservice that you can make, that you can have for your children, especially your male children, is to constantly be bailing them out. Constantly be coming to their defense. Constantly, there's an issue in church, and I'm, gonna, I'm mama bear, and I'm going to come make it right. You know, sometimes your kids need to just fail a little bit. Sometimes they, you need to just make them repay what they broke. Sometimes they need to just learn. You know, and here's what I found over the last seven years of pastoring in a church. Here's what I found, all right? 98% of the problems we have in church, well... 98% of the problems we have in church are women, all right? I'll tell you that. But, but the other 2%, you know, the problems we have with men, I'll tell you this. The problems we have with men at Verity Baptist Church that we've had with men, it's always been this. It's been men whose parents are just constantly bailing them out. I mean, when you've got a man who's like 30-some-odd years old, still living at home, still living with mom and dad, you know, whenever there's a financial problem, they can't figure out how to go get a second job. They can't figure out how to get up early, stay up late. They can't figure out how to make money. But mom and dad are always there. Just bail them out. Mom, what I have found in ministry is that the guys that you can just tell, they're a mama's boy. They're, you know, daddy's always there. Daddy's always going to take, you need a car? I'll buy you a car. You need a house? You can stay here. Let me rent you. A, I mean, I, I, I know of grown men that got parents paying their rent. And it's like, good night. And then those are the guys that give you problems in church. And you say, well, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I'm just telling you, mom and dad, you're going to ruin your children. You're going to ruin your kids if you don't learn, to, if you don't teach them to take personal responsibility when they break something, when they lose their temper, when they do wrong. Hey, they've got to pay for it. Teach them to do that. And if we had men, and we had, and the men, and you, you know the men that never give us a problem at Verity Baptist Church? The ones that, they've got no safety net. They just got to take care of their families. They just got to take care of their wives. They just got, mama's not sending them a check. You know, one of the best things, that, and I've said this before, but one of the best things that my mom and dad did for me when I was 18 years old, two weeks after I graduated high school, I remember sitting in a garage with my dad, and he's explaining to me, son, you're getting married. You're getting married next week. You think you're, eight, you're 18. You, th you think you're old enough to get married. You, you know, we're not going to stop you, but you're not coming home. You're, we're not paying your rent. We're cutting the umbilical cord. You're on your own. And you say, well, your parents are so mean. No, I think it was one of the greatest things they ever did for us. Because you know what happened to my wife and I? We grew up. We figured out how to make it happen. 
And you know, there were some weeks where it was top ramen. <laughs> you know, there were some weeks where it was lean. But you know, and I'm not saying that they wouldn't help us if we didn't need it. But here's what I'm saying is, when you've got parents that are just constantly coming, does God do that? Does God just say, oh, you stole that person's thing. You broke that person's thing. You, you know, you, you did them wrong. Just bring me a sacrifice and it's fine. No, God says, you need to go to that individual. You need to make it right. You need to restore it. And by the way, why don't you add 20% so you can learn the lesson. That's how God treats us as a heavenly father. And that's how you as a parent needs to treat. Just, 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 you know, I'm just trying to help their future pastor. Why don't you just teach your, parent, your kids to have responsibility, to pay their own way when they mess up, when they break something, when they do wrong, to just say, uh, no, no, well, mom and dad need to bail me out. The government needs to bail me out. Pastor needs to bail me out. No, no, no. Why don't you just learn to work and bail yourself out? Why don't you just pay your own bills? Why don't you just take care of yourself? Here we have God teaching us about personal responsibility. And look, I know this preaching isn't popular because we live in a society today where they're always trying to shift their responsibility to somebody else. Let Obama take care of me. Let Trump take care of me. Let, some, let somebody else take care of it. No, no. You need to take care of it. You need to learn to pay your own way and to make things right when you, when you mess up. And, and people say, well, you know, they don't like this high preaching. And here's the thing. You can get mad at me and you can go to some other church or whatever, but that lack of character is going to follow you there. That, that inability to take responsibility for your own actions is going to follow you there. You'd be better off in life if you just learn how to take responsibility for yourself. And here God is teaching, about, about, uh, teaching us about responsibility. He's teaching us that when you do wrong, you should take responsibility. And therefore, repentance requires restoration. When you do someone wrong, try to make it right. Now look, sometimes you can't make it right. You know, thinking about the, thinking about the, the life of Joseph. You know, his brothers, they couldn't give him those years back, obviously. You know, sometimes all you can do is apologize. And you should have a sincere apology. But if there's a way to restore, if there's a way to make it right, if there's a way to pay it back, you should do that. That's what the Bible is teaching us here. So the first lesson we see is that repentance requires restoration. And it's all wrapped around this idea of personal responsibility, which in my opinion is the one, is probably the major thing that's lacking in our country today. And here's the thing, the government doesn't want you, you know, the government school system does not want to teach children how to be responsible because he wants, the government wants us as a society to be dependent on them. They want us to just, to be able, not be able to do anything on our own, to just, we need the government to take care of us. You should reject that as a Christian. So number one, we see the principle there of restoration and responsibility. Number two, we see a second lesson here. Go, go back to Leviticus chapter 6, look at verse 8. Leviticus 6, verse 8. That didn't go over very well, so let's move on to something else. Sometimes your kids need you to, to, to protect them. We get that. But they don't always need you to step in. It's normal for little kids to fight. It's normal for, you know, you got two-year-olds fighting over a toy. You don't need, that doesn't need to turn into an adult fight. A mom versus mom fight. It's ridiculous. You know, sometimes your kids need to learn to just, they don't get the toy right now. Well, they're going to cry. You know, let them fail a little bit. It'll be good for them. Number two, that didn't go over well either. Go to Leviticus 6, verse 8. Some of you men ought to get permission from your wives to say amen every once in a while. That'd be nice. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8. Leviticus 6, 8. I don't really know why the single guys don't say amen. They don't have to ask anybody permission. They're just... Leviticus 6, 8. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying... And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, 
This is the law of the burnt offering. So here's where he starts going back and reviewing the different offerings. He's going to talk about the burnt offering. It is a burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. So here he's going to just uh, key in on one thought about the burnt offering. And the thought about the burnt offering is this, that the fire is burning constantly. Notice, all night until unto the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. Look at verse 10. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them besides the altar, and he shall put off his garments, and put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. And the fire upon the altar, notice, shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offering. Notice verse 13. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. You say, well, what, what is that about? What is the picture there? Keep your place there in Leviticus. Go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter number 5. You, you got, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. The fire is for the offerings. The fire is for the burnt offering. But later on we're told that the different sacrifices are burnt on the same fire of the burnt offering. And, and the idea that he's promoting is that the fire shall never be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. The fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall never be put out. That's what he said. It will always be burning. The sacrifices will always have a fire to burn in. Say, what does that have to do? What can we learn from that? Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 2. Notice what the Bible says, Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love. Isn't that what we were just talking about? As Christ also hath loved us. And hath given himself for us, notice, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. See, the Bible says here that Christ hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. Haven't we seen that throughout the last five chapters of Leviticus? How every single one pictured Christ in some way. And we saw those parallels, how uh, it was like Christ. And here we're told that he gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice. So here's, here's what you need to understand. Go, go, go to the book of Acts. You're there in Ephesians. Go backwards towards Acts. You're going to go past Galatians, First, uh, Second Corinthians, Romans, Acts. Acts chapter 2. Here's what we learned from this passage. Lesson number two. The sacrifice of Christ included burning in hell. The sacrifice of Christ included burning in hell. In Ephesians 5.2, we're told that he gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. He gave himself as a sacrifice, as an offering. In Leviticus, we're told that the sacrifices were all to be burnt, that, they, that it would be burning. It shall never go out. And this is one of the doctrines that has slipped away from Christianity, where many people don't believe this anymore. But listen to me very carefully. The Bible is very clear. When Jesus died, his body was buried, and his soul went down to hell, and he burned, and he suffered for three days and three nights. That's what the Bible says. Are you there in Acts chapter 2? Look at verse number 25. Acts chapter 2 and verse 25. Acts chapter 2 and verse 25, the Bible says this, Acts 2.25, For David speaketh concerning him. Now the him there is referring to Christ. You'll see that in a moment. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, 
for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Now, when you read up to there, you know, you may ask yourself, is David referring to himself, or is he referring to Christ? Because legitimately, you know, you could make the argument that David is referring to himself. But notice what he says in verse 27. Because thou shalt not leave my soul in hell... Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, if you study that term, holy one, throughout the Bible, it's always the coming Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the holy one. Notice verse 28. It gets even clearer. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. So now Peter says, let, let, I'm ta- let's talk about David. That he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, who was a prophet? David. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, that's David, seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. So it's very clear who David is talking about. He's talking about Christ. What is he saying? That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So it's very clear that the prophecy of Christ was that his soul went down to hell. Go to the book of Jonah. Jonah, real quickly, towards the end of the Old Testament. You got Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Jonah chapter number 2. I want to show you something just real quickly. And, and you know this, we, we've dealt with this before, but it's good to just remind you of this. Jonah chapter 2, look at verse 1. Remember Jonah gets swallowed by the whale in the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah. And then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of, notice what he says, out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Now, question, is Jonah in hell? No. Where is Jonah? He's in the belly of the whale. But Jonah is a prophet. He's prophesying because Jonah's going to spend three days and three nights in the whale's belly So while he's in the belly, he makes this prophecy where he, like David, was speaking, David was speaking as if it was about himself, but it was really about Christ. Well, Jonah is also speaking of himself, but it's really about Christ. Notice what he says. I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heardest my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep. Now Jonah's talking about himself. In the midst of the seas, that's where he is. And the floods compass me about, that's where he is. All thy billows and thy waves pass me over, that's where he is. And here's what you need to understand about Bible prophecy, especially the Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets. They'll often go in and out of speaking about future events and speaking about current events. And David and Jonah literally is going back and forth because he says, I cried, he says, out of the belly of hell cried I. But then he's talking about the fact that he's in the waters. Look at verse 4. Then I said... I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compass me about. That's where he is. Even to the soul. The depths. Now notice what he says. The depths closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. Notice verse 6. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. Was Jonah really in the bottoms of the mountains? The earth with her bars was about me forever. 
Was Jonah really, you know, having just in the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with her bars were about me forever? Yet has thou brought up my life from corruption. Didn't we just read in Acts chapter 2 about, the, about Christ that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his body see corruption? He says, my life was brought out, out of, uh, uh, from corruption, O Lord my God. And here's what's interesting. Jonah is in the whale's belly, and he prophesies. He says, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. He said, the earth with her bars compass me about. He said, I cried from the belly of hell. And here's what's interesting. Jesus would then refer to Jonah, and Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it's interesting that he uses Jonah as a parallel, as an example, not just because Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights, but when you go back and look at what Jonah said in the belly for three days and three nights, he's saying, I'm in hell. So what is Jesus trying to tell us? When Jesus went down to the heart of the earth, he went to hell. He didn't go to paradise. He didn't go to some hotel in hell that's nice, okay? If, if it was a nice place, why is he crying out from the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heard is my voice? And look, if you, if you cut this globe in half in the center, you know what you're going to find? Hell. You're going to find lava and fire. The Bible calls it the, the lake of fire. And we understand the lake of fire is a different thing, but it's, it's the same thing. It refers to both as hell. And here's what I want you to understand. Jesus went down to hell. And doesn't that just make sense? I mean, if, he pay, if, if, if our sin condemned us to hell and he saved us from our condemnation, then wouldn't he have to pay by going to hell? Wouldn't it make sense that he'd only die? So here we learn, and, and the offerings are teaching us, go back to Leviticus, the offerings are teaching us when it keeps bringing up this idea about the burnt, the fire, not going out. What we learn from that is that Jesus went to hell. The sacrifice of Christ included burning in hell. That's why the sacrifices keeps mentioning they have to get burnt, they have to get burnt. Go back to Leviticus chapter 6, look at verse 10. Let me give you lesson number 3. Lesson number 3. Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 10. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen... I want you to notice this word. You see this word, B-R-E-E-C-H-E-S? The word is breeches, okay? That's, that's an archaic spelling of this word, breeches. B-R-I-T-C-H-E-S. The Bible is telling us here, and the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen breeches or his linen breeches all right the word breeches is defined by dictionary.com which is not necessarily a uh, fundamentalist type you know resource as knee length trousers also called pants now who grew up in church where you went to church your whole life you know whether it was a good church or bad church whatever you went to church you know as a child okay who when i was a kid growing up in sunday school they would always show us pictures, you know, of Jonah, show us pictures of Moses, all right? Who, who remembers that the men were always wearing, like, dresses? I mean, isn't that all the pictures? Isn't that all the movies? You know, when you watch those movies, which you shouldn't watch, but if you watch those, you know, the Bible series or whatever, aren't they always wearing dresses? Aren't they always wearing these long, the men? But look, the Bible's telling us very clearly here that the priests were not wearing dresses, they were wearing breeches. They're wearing knee-length trousers, also called pants. You say, why would they be knee-length? Because they're in the desert. Because <laughs> it's hot. All right? But they're wearing pants. This is back in the time of Moses. 
All right, so don't fall for this idea that Jesus was walking around this earth in a dress. All right, I do believe that he was probably wearing a long overcoat, but I think he was wearing a pair of pants. Men have worn pants throughout the ages. People act like, well, pants weren't invented. Look, it's not that, would it really take a genius to invent pants? It's not that complicated, you know what I mean? I mean, if you can figure out how to make a shirt, you're halfway there, all right? So the men wore pants. And you find this throughout the Old Testament. You're there in Leviticus 6, go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, look at verse 4. So here's lesson number 3. In the Bible, men wore pants. Leviticus chapter uh, 16, look at verse 4. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4. Notice what the Bible says. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen, notice this word, breeches, breeches upon his flesh. So there again, Leviticus 16 is reaffirming the fact that the priest wore pants. Go to Exodus chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. And, and we see it with the priest because the priest, because God is telling us exactly what he wants priests to wear. He's telling, you know, and he, and he t- says more than just pants. I mean, he's talking about putting hats on and putting uh, a belt on. He's talking about all sorts of things. Exodus 39, look at verse 28. Exodus 39, while you turn there, let me read for you from Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44 and verse 18 says this, They shall have linen bonnets upon their heads and shall have linen breeches upon their loins. So they, again, the breeches comes up in Ezekiel 44. Exodus 39, look at verse 28. And a mitra, a fine linen, and goodly bonnets of fine linen, and linen breeches or breeches, a fine twine linen. Go to Exodus 28. Look at verse 42. And by the way, in Daniel, it, the, the word hosen is used. Uh, and again, referring to pants and things of that nature. Exodus 28. Look at verse 42 about men wearing them. Exodus 28, verse 42. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. From the loins even unto the thigh, they shall reach. So, look, the Old Testament priests were wearing pants. They weren't wearing dresses. They weren't wearing long robes and, you know, just nothing underneath. They were wearing breeches, knee-length trousers, also called pants. And why is this important? Well, go to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, and look at verse number 5. You're there in Exodus. You're going to go past Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Because here's what I want you to understand, all right? Here's lesson number 3. In the Bible, men wore pants and women did not. In the Bible, men wore pants and women did not. Deuteronomy 22, look at verse number 5. Deuteronomy 22. Now look, for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard this. You may say, I've never even heard this before. Look, remember, remember the first point? Our relationship with God is dependent on our relationship with others. And let me, let me tell some of you women that like to start fights with everybody, you think you're right with God because you're so fundamental, but you want to fight everybody, you ought never treat any woman wrong who walks into this church wearing a pair of pants just because we believe that women should not wear pants. Hey, you ought to treat them with love and respect. They may have never heard that before. Don't you ever walk up to some guest or some visitor and rebuke them for wearing a pair of pants? They, They may have never even heard that before. You know, we need to show grace and love and be respectful. And, and look, if I, walk, if I run into you out in the grocery store, ladies, and you're wearing a pair of pants, I'm not going to rebuke you or make you feel bad. I'm going to be kind to you. Like, that's between you and God. I don't really care. Yep, that's right. But I'm still going to preach what the Bible says. Yeah. 
And the Bible says this in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. And I'm, I'm never going to stop preaching this. I don't care how unpopular it gets. I don't care that every other independent Federal Baptist quits preaching this. I could care less. I'm going to preach this till the day I die. I'm going to believe this till the day I die. Deuteronomy 22, 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. That's what the Bible says. Amen. And people always want to say, well, depending on their culture, you don't know if their culture. And here's what people try to say to me. They try to say, well, what if in that culture the women wore pants and the men wore dresses? Then it was mixed up. But let me explain something to you. Who wrote the book of Deuteronomy? Talking about the human instrument. We understand that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But who's the human author of the book of Deuteronomy? I'll give you one guess. His name is Moses. And you know what else? Moses wrote the book of Leviticus. And Moses wrote the book of Exodus. And Moses is the one that told us uh, four times in his books that men wore breeches. That men, in Leviticus 6.10, they wore breeches. In Leviticus 16.4, they wore breeches. In Exodus 39.28, they wore breeches. In Exodus 28.42, they wore breeches. Moses wrote that. So when Moses says, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, I think he's talking about breeches. I think that's what he's referring to. Since he's the one that four times told us that's what men wore when he lived. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Listen to me. There was a day in this country when a woman would not dare go out in public wearing a pair of pants. If you don't believe that, look it up. Research it. There was a day in this country when women would not dare leave the house in a pair of pants, but this, the devil, here's what the devil did. He, he tried to, he's, he's, and he's done it successfully. Blurred the lines where it's now okay for women to wear pants. And it's just, and, and, and you know, the fact that I would even stand up and, and preach against it in 2017 just makes me a Neanderthal, just makes me, you know, this crazy cult leader or whatever. But look, the woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man. And then that's been accepted in our society, hasn't it? Guess what's next? Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. You know that's coming. There's, I'm telling you, there's coming, a, there's coming a day when men are going to walk around in skirts and dresses. It's already happening. But there's coming a day when most men will walk around in skirts and dresses. And any preacher that gets up and says, you men ought to wear pants. People are going to look at him and say, you're crazy. What are you, some sort of a legalist? You say, why? Why? What's wrong with it? Look at the verse. For all that do so are, notice this word, abomination unto the Lord thy God. Isn't the word abomination also used in reference to sodomy? Isn't transgender, sodomy, cross-dressing, aren't all those things kind of connected? Look, the Bible says that there ought to be a difference between male and female. By the way, 1 Corinthians 11 teaches that men should have short hair, women should have long hair. Say, why does that matter? Because God said it. That's why it matters. Because God said, I want men to look a certain way. I want them to have short hair. I want them to put on a pair of pants. I want them to go to work. And I want women to have long hair and put on dresses and be feminine. God wants there to be a difference between the sexes. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to blur the line. Or you've got these effeminate-looking guys with their tight little jeans, with their long hair, and women want to cut their hair short. It's wrong. It's not scripture. You say, well, well what, what base do you have that? The Word of God. That's all we've got. And that's all we need. That's what the Bible says. And, and you pant-wearing ladies, if you want to argue with me about it, then please explain to me Deuteronomy 22.5, 
what he's referring to. Because he, he says, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto man. The word pertaineth means that belongs to. So obviously, there is some article of clothing that belongs to a man that a woman should not wear. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Obviously, there is some article of clothing that a woman should wear that a man should not. What is that? What I mean, is it a shirt? Is it a watch? Is it shoes? Is it socks? You, you come make the, you know, I showed you several verses where men are wearing britches. Show, show me the verse, you know, show me what, but you can't just ignore the verse. You can't just ignore the word of God. The Bible teaches that men wear pants and women do not, period. And it's Moses who wrote it. It's Moses who said, now look, if you say, I don't care, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do whatever I want, then fine, go for it. I, I don't care. Look, I'm not going to be mad at you. If I run into you in the store, you're wearing pants, I'm going to be kind to you, or I'm just going to, you know, go out the back door. I don't know. You know, I'm just, I, I'm going to be nice to you, all right? I don't really care. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to talk bad about you behind your back. I'm not going to be upset with you. But this is what the Bible teaches. You can't just ignore the Bible. You've got to be honest to say, there's got to be something that God is trying to tell me in Deuteronomy 22, 5. And here's what people often say to me. Well, it's only one verse. How many verses do you need? Amen. I mean, how many times does God have to say something before it's true or it's right? Amen. He said it. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. And if you are cross-dressing, you are helping out the abomination agenda. That's the truth. You've got to decide. Look, some of you ladies, if you got smart, you know, you'd get right with God on this subject, and then you'd, you, you tell your husband, hey, you've got to buy me a whole new wardrobe. Pastor said... I need all new clothes, all right? Go, go, go back to Leviticus chapter 6. Oh, and let me say this. Let me just answer all, all the questions. Because, uh, you know, because I, I always have people ask me questions about this. So let me just Because people say, well, pastors, don't you understand? There are pants that are made for women. And there are pants that are made for men. Okay, let me explain something to you. The pants that are made for women, what makes them for women is that they are tight is that they, they hug your body. That's the difference. So guess what? That's immodest. You're still not right. That's right. You know, you're, well, I, I, my pants, you know, a man would never wear this. Well, thanks to the abomination agenda, men do wear those now, actually. But you say, well, a man would never wear these pants because they're tight. Then you need to get right with God and, and wear something that's modest and that doesn't bring attention to different parts of your body. Amen. That's what the Bible says. What can we learn from Leviticus 6? In the Bible, men wear pants and women do not. And look, if, if, if I'm wrong, then show me where I'm wrong. If there's something I'm missing, then, then, then bring it to me. Leviticus 6, look at verse 14. Leviticus 6, 14. Lesson number 4. Leviticus 6, 14. And this is the law of the meat offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord, before the altar. And he, that's referring to the priest, shall take of it... That's referring to the meat offering, his handful. We talked about this already several weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But here's lesson number four. The New Testament pastor gets paid the same way the Old Testament priest did. The New Testament pastor, number one, gets paid. There's a whole movement of Christians today that says a pastor should not get paid. That's a lie. Then there's another movement of the same losers who say, not only should the pastor not get paid, but we shouldn't tithe, we shouldn't bring money to the church. That's a lie. And you say, well, how do you know? How do you know? Well, notice in Leviticus 6, 14 or 15. And he, 
the priest shall take up it, the meat offering, which is the offering that the people brought to give to the temple, his handful, he's going to grab a handful of the flour, the meat offering, and of the oil thereof, and of all the frankincense, which is upon the meat offering, and shall burn it, shall burn what? The handful. Just a handful burns it. Every, every offering has to get burned because Jesus went to hell. They all have to have that. He's going to burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor, even the, mem- uh, uh, the memorial of it unto the Lord. Look at verse 16. And the remainder thereof, what didn't get burnt, what do you do with that? The remainder thereof shall Aaron and his sons eat. With unleavened bread shall it be eaten in the holy place, in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. They shall eat it. It shall not be bacon with leaven. I, that's God, have given it unto them, that's the priest, for their portion, for their payment. Of my offerings made by fire, it is most holy, as is the sin offering and as is the trespass offering. And the males among the children of Aaron shall eat of it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Every one of that toucheth them shall be holy. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We saw this several weeks ago, but let's just look at it real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Hey, Pastor, are you mad? I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just preaching Leviticus 6. If you can come up with a better outline, you know. Give it to me and I'll preach it next week. 1 Corinthians 9. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to preach it all long. 1 Corinthians 9. Look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians 9. Look at verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. Do ye not know... And by the way, and just in case you didn't notice, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. Because people are like, well, in the New Testament, you don't have to pay the pastor. In the New Testament, you don't have to bring an offering. Okay. 1 Corinthians 9. 13. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things... Who's that? That's the priest... That they which minister about holy things. Notice these two words. Live of. Live of the things of the temple. You know what the word live of means? You ever heard somebody say, you know, uh, he makes his living doing X, Y, and Z. Make a living from. It's talking about their job, their career, how they get paid. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? Didn't we just see that? The priest is doing all this work, making the sacrifices, but he lives off of that. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Notice verse 14. Even so, in the same way, hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel, that's the New Testament pastor, the New Testament preacher, the evangelist, the ones that are preaching the gospel, you know, and, and, and by the way, the gospel is the entire Great Commission, not just soul winning, but all of it, they which preach the gospel should live. That's how they make their living. That's how they get paid of the gospel. Here's what he's saying. You're going to pay the New Testament spiritual leadership, whether it's the apostle or the pastor or the evangelist or the deacon. He said the way you're going to pay the guy that lives off of the preaching of the gospel, you're going to pay him the same way that the Old Testament priest. So when somebody on YouTube, and I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of morons that are putting things on this video when it goes up, and they're going to be saying, you know, as people put comments and it's like, did you even listen to the sermon? You know, because they'll put a comment like, in the New Testament, you're not supposed to pay the pastor. It's like, you obviously didn't listen to the sermon. But the New Testament is teaching us that the way that the New Testament preacher gets paid is the same way, even so, that the Old Testament priest got paid. How did they get paid? They, you brought your tithes, you brought your offerings, they did the work, and they lived off of that. 
So that, so that establishes both paying spiritual leadership and it establishes also the fact that we are to give tithes and offerings as New Testament believers as well. Go back to Leviticus 6, look at verse 19. Leviticus 6, 19. Let me give you lesson number 5. So if you're not tithing, you're not right with God. This sermon just has something for everybody. It's the sermon that keeps on giving, you know. Lesson 5. Leviticus 6, look at verse 19. Leviticus 6, 19. Leviticus 6, 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, this is the offering of Aaron. All right, so here's lesson number five. Okay, we just talked about paying the pastor, right? Here's lesson five. The spiritual leader should give to the work of God like the followers do. Pastors do not get an exception where I don't have to tithe because I get paid from the church. I've heard pastors say that, or I don't have to give. Some pastors take it as far, I don't have to go soul winning, you know, Look, what's expected of the follower, it's expected of the pastor. The pastor is to be an example, not for the believers, but of a believer. The way that the pastor lives his life should be the example for the people. Notice Leviticus 6.20. This is the offering of Aaron and of his sons, which they, the priest, shall offer unto the Lord in the day when he is anointed, the tenth part of an ephah, fine flour of meat offering, perpetual, half of it in the morning and half of it thereof at night, in a pan it shall be made with oil, and when it is bacon, thou shalt uh, bring it in, and the bacon pieces of the meat offering shalt thou offer for a sweet savor unto the Lord. Notice verse 22, and the priest of his sons that is anointed in his stead shall offer it. It is a statute forever unto the Lord. It shall be, notice the difference for the, for the priest, it shall be wholly burnt. For every meat offering for the priest shall be wholly burned, it shall not be eaten. Here's what he's saying. When a normal person brings a meat offering, they just take a handful, burn that, keep the rest as their payment. But when the priest brings a meat offering, they got to burn the whole thing. And here's what the Bible is teaching us, that God wanted to hurt for the priest when they give. Doesn't it hurt you? You go off and work all week long, and then you take 10% of that income and return it back to God? Well, guess what? Those of us that work in ministry, we are, you know, we earn our pay, obviously. We work all week long as well, and then we are to take 10% of that or whatever that offering, that vision offering, and, and, and it should hurt us too, you know? They don't get to keep their own peace offering. They've just got to burn the whole thing. Go to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter number 10. We're almost done. Nehemiah chapter 10. Look at verse 37. You're there in Leviticus, Numbers. You got Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter number 10. Look at verse 37. Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 37. Nehemiah 10, 37. The Bible says this. You find those 1st and 2nd books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 10.37, and that we should bring the first fruits. See that term first fruits? That's talking about your tithe. And, and you can study that out if you'd like, but that's, that's what that's referring to. And by the way, the 10%, you give it to God first. You, it's a first fruit. You pay him first. You pay God before you pay anybody else. And that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine and of oil unto the priests, to the chambers of the house of God. The tithes, I thought it was the first fruits. No, it's the tithes. Well, why, why is he talking about first? Because they're the same thing. The tithes of our ground unto the Levites. That proves that that's how the Levites got paid. They got paid when the people brought the first fruits, when the people brought their tithes of our ground. They brought them unto the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. 
And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take the tithe, and the Levites shall bring up, notice, notice this, don't miss this, the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes. You see that? So how did the Levites and the priests, got, how did they get paid? People brought their tithes, they took it and they lived off that. But then the priests and the Levites were expected to take a 10% of that 10% and give that to God. Why? Because they were expected to tithe also. So look, if 1 Corinthians 9 says that the same way that the pastor gets paid is the way that the Old Testament priests got paid, then I think it's safe to assume that the same way that the Old Testament priests tithe is the way that pastors should tithe. So, you know, I don't know, this, I don't, I don't, none of you are pastors, I guess. It doesn't affect you, but if you're a pastor listening to a sermon, make sure you tithe. That's what the Bible says. The spiritual leader should give like the followers do. Uh, let's see, go back to Leviticus 6. Let me give you lesson number 6. Remember, we, I'm giving you six lessons from Leviticus chapter 6. The first lesson was repentance requires restoration has this idea of responsibility. I lost some of you just right there. And then lesson two, the sacrifice of Christ included burning in hell. Well, you probably didn't care about that one. That was fine. Then lesson three, the Bible, in the Bible, men wear pants and women do not. Lesson four, New Testament masters get paid the same way that Old Testament priests do. Lesson five, the spiritual leader should give like the followers do. Let me give you one last lesson and we'll be done. Leviticus chapter six, verse 20. This is the offering of Aaron and of his sons, which they, which who? Who's the they there? That's the priests shall offer unto the Lord. When? When are they to offer this offering, this special offering? Unto the Lord. In the day when He is anointed. Alright? The equivalent of the, of the priest being anointed in the New Testament is when the pastor or the deacon or the evangelist is ordained. Okay, when we ordain New Testament spiritual leadership, we lay hands on them. In the Old Testament, prophets, kings, and priests were anointed with oil. The idea here is that in the day when the priest is commissioned for the ministry, he's supposed to bring this offering. Look at verse 22. And the priest of his sons that is anointed in his stead. Do you see that? Shall offer it. It is a statute forever unto the Lord. It shall be holy burnt. Here's what he's saying. When your son, the second generation, is anointed into the priesthood, notice Leviticus 6.22, and the priest of his sons that is anointed, notice these three words, in his stead. All right, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you find those T-books in the New Testament, you got 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's lesson number 6. There is no success without succession. There is no success without succession. See, the Levites, it wasn't enough for them to be a priest, to be a Levite or to be a priest. They also had to be training future priests. And here we are told that when the priests get anointed on the day that they are anointed, they're supposed to give the special sacrifice, and they are anointed in his stead to replace the old generation. Because here's what he's saying these Levites are going to die off someday. These Levites are going to quit. You know, these priests are going to die off someday. The high priest isn't going to live forever other than the, the real high priest, the main high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. But these men were going to die. So they had to be training new men. They had to be training their own sons to be able to take their place in his stead. Are you there in 2 Timothy chapter 2? Look at verse 1. Notice what Paul says. Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, Thou therefore... 
my son. See the word son there? Now, was Timothy Paul's son? No, not physically, but he was a spiritual son. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying, Timothy, there is no success without succession. Verity Baptist Church, I don't care. You know, when we started this church, we had like, for the first like eight months, we, were, we averaged, I think, like eight people in church. You know, we were just wondering like, when are we going to hit double digits? You know, it'd be nice one day when we hit 10, you know. And obviously our church has grown over the last six and a half years, seven years. And I believe that our church is going to continue to grow. Amen. But look, it doesn't matter how big this church gets. It doesn't matter if one day, you know, one day, Lord willing, soon we'll hit, you know, we hit 211 for Easter. I hope one day we're averaging 200 on Sunday morning. And someday we're averaging 300 and 400. I hope that one day we're averaging not just 75 soul winners a week, but we're averaging 100 soul winners a week and 150 soul winners a week. I hope that one day we're not just having 120 or 115 or whatever on Wednesday night and Sunday night, but that we have 200 on Wednesday night and Sunday night. But listen to me. We will fail no matter how big this church gets and how many people we reach. We will fail if we do not figure out a way to have succession. If we do not figure out a way to train the next generation, listen to me, we need young men. You say, why do you preach about pants? Why do you preach about responsibility? Why do you preach about those things? Because we need these young kids, listen to me right now, to stand up one day and get up one day and preach the same Bible and preach the same doctrines and believe the same things that we believe today. We have to train the next generation or we will fail. And by the way, don't put it in your kids' heads that if they go into ministry, they're going to be some sort of a loser. You know, these parents that are like, you got to go to college, and you got to be this, and you got to be that. Look, I'm all for, if God hasn't called you into ministry, and I don't believe everybody should go into ministry, and here's what I think. If you have not been called into ministry, then you need to just find a pastor, love that pastor, help that pastor, Go work hard, support the ministry financially and physically and all of that. But you know, we do need pastors. Amen. We do need young men to go into ministry. Amen. We do need people to, 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 to go out and to start churches and to, and to just decide to just decide that their life's not going to be all about money. Let me just explain something to you. When you go into ministry, your life is not about money. So if you love money, you're not, you can't do it. You've got to be okay with having a fence that's falling over. You've got to be okay with having a van that's doors doesn't close. You know, you got to be okay with having a car that you're just not sure if it's ever going to, you know, if it, it might start this morning and it might not. You've got to be okay. You say, Pastor, you complain. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you, you got to be okay with those things. you got to be okay with everybody hating you. you got to be okay with having like five women in church mad at you at every moment. You know, it may be different five women, but just at any given moment in church, there will always be five women mad at Pastor Jimenez for something he said or something he preached or something he told, you know, because he told her husband to buck up and to quit being a baby and to, you know, take responsibility. You just got to be okay with that. But look, if you say, hey, I can do that. I, I, can, I can have people hate me. I can stand up and preach. I can, I can take a stand. I, I can work hard. I can get up early, stay up late. I can work a job and write sermons. I can do all of that. Hey, if you can do that, we need you. Amen. 
Because there is no success without succession. And here the priest and his sons were anointed in his stead. Someone's got to take my place. And someone's got to take Pastor Anderson's place and Pastor Romero's place and Pastor Manley. I'm talking about years from now, but we got to start trains. We, and we need churches like this all across America. We need churches like this all across California. We need, we need to be able to train men and send them out and teach them doctrine and teach them the word of God. Teach them how to go soul winning. Teach them how to love their wives, how to lead people and go out and preach the gospel. There is no success without succession. And here we see in Leviticus 6 that God was telling the priests, you don't just do the priestly work. Make sure you're training the next generation. Make sure your sons one day are ordained to take your place. He, and, and Paul said, you know, find, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Let's bow here to have a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Leviticus, even chapter 6, where we can learn just practical things for our lives even today. And Lord, I, I pray for the young men in our church. I pray for these, these kids that they're not even married. I pray for these teens and, and these children, Lord, that they've got the whole future ahead of them. Lord, I, I pray that you would just uh, burden some of their hearts, Lord, that you would put desire in their hearts, that they would uh, want to live for you and, 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 and want to go out and start churches, Lord. And if you're not leading them in that direction, then that's okay, too. They're not second-class citizens, Lord, if they're not... Going in that direction, then I pray that they would just be faithful and be a help to their pastor and be faithful men who work hard and go soul winning and love the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is sending out men, training men. Lord, I pray that one day we'd be able to cut the umbilical cord off of Vancouver and let them be their own uh, church, Lord, and then plant another one. And help us to spend our days just replacing ourselves, Lord, and reaching more people with the gospel. We love you, Lord, in your precious name, I pray. Amen.